1987. Police are alerted when two men fail to return to their wives after scouting out fishing spots near the Victoria River in the Northern Territory of Australia. Police would later find two shallow graves on the banks of the river. This is the story of Joseph Swab, the Kimberley Killer. host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, tonight we have a shocking story of a German tourist who went on a killing spree in Australia's top end in 1987. Over a period of five days and in two separate incidents, there would be five dead in some of the most remote areas of Australia. Although I've not been there myself, the top end of Australia has some beautiful areas consisting of ancient steep-sided mountain ranges of northwestern Australia cut through with sandstone and limestone gorges and steep ridges. After the wet season's over and then the dry season comes, which is May to October, it attracts tourists from not only the other states of Australia but from all over the world. If you've seen the movie Wolf Creek, that will give you some idea of the remoteness of the area up in the Kimberleys. It will also give you some idea that not only sharks, crocs, snakes, spiders or drop bears will kill you, but how vulnerable you are if someone goes fully rogue as no one will hear your screams. Now I'd like to first give credit to John Horswell, He's a former Northern Territory police officer and later an Australian Federal Police officer as I will be using parts of his article that are on the Northern Territory Police Museum site. So I'll start off a bit about Joseph Thomas Swab. He was born in Starnberg, West Germany on November the 25th, 1960. He was said to be shy Helpful and polite, but a loner with few friends. He joined the local rifle club in Pocking, where he lived, at the age of 15 and remained a member of the club for six years up until 1981. He loved his guns. On June the 15th, 1981, age 20, Swab left Germany and travelled to South Australia, where he stayed at Seaview Road, Henley Beach. I don't know if any of the listeners know where that is or even lived nearby. He got work as a cabinet maker in Adelaide and became a member of the Southern Cross Pistol Club in Torrensville. 
After buying several rifles and a four-wheel drive, he would often go out pig shooting in the bush. He returned to Germany on May the 10th, 1984. Back in West Germany, he got a job as a night watchman and he was trained in combat shooting with pistols, not with rifles. While on the job, Swab wore a Ruger .357 Magnum caliber revolver. He was employed as a night watchman between April the 3rd, 1985 and April 15, 1987. Schwab did have criminal convictions for break and enter, forcibly entering a passenger car and doing a runner from a restaurant. According to his doctor, he'd not suffered any major illness and had no history of mental problems. On March 18, 1987, Schwab purchased $5,400 worth of traveller's checks in Munich and he departed from Frankfurt on April the 16th via Bangkok, arriving in Brisbane on April the 18th, 1987. He stayed in room 40 at the Atchley Hotel 513 Queen Street, Brisbane. Now that's not there anymore, that's now where the Marriott is. On April the 22nd, he rents a Toyota 4Runner four-wheel drive, registered 338PNZ from Avis Rentals at Brisbane Airport, using the name and address of a non-related Schwab in Munich. The next day, the 23rd, Schwab goes to the ANZ Bank in Queen Street, Bris Vegas and gets a $1,000 cash advance after reporting that he's lost all his traveller's checks. But this was all bullshit and he proceeded to cash $4,000 worth of traveller's checks at the Westpac Bank and $1,395 at the Commonwealth Bank two days later in Wollongabba. So a few days into his trip, he's committed fraud with the traveller's checks and rented a car under a false name. This already is starting to look a bit dodgy, especially what he does later that day. He goes to the Five Ways Firearm Shop in Logan Road, Wollongabba and puts a deposit on a Ruger self-loading Mini 14.223 caliber rifle, a Seiko Bolt Action Forester Hunter 0.308 caliber rifle, a Bruno Bolt Action 0.22 caliber rifle, and a Winchester 12 gauge pump action shotgun. The next day, the 24th of April, he returns to the firearm shop and pays the balance owing and buys a shitload of ammo. He gets 0.223 calibre, he gets 900 cartridges. 0.308 calibre, 318 soft point cartridges. 0.308 calibre, 100 hollow point cartridges. 0.308 calibre, 280 full metal jacket cartridges. And so the total cartridges for the 308 
is 698 rounds. He gets 480 SG buckshot cartridges for the 12 gauge and for the .22 caliber rifle he gets 922 cartridges. So he's got four firearms and 3,000 cartridges of ammo. Now I'm not into guns so I hope I haven't mucked that up too much. I'm sure I'll hear about it. Anyway, this guy is not mucking around. It's amazing that someone who's been in the country less than a week can buy all this stuff. But then again, this is before the Port Arthur Massacre. On May the 6th, Schwab is known to get petrol or gasoline for our Americans about 1,500 kilometres or just over 900 miles west of Brisbane at a place called Diamantina. He gets a parking ticket in Mount Isa on the 9th of May. Now, this is about 560 kilometres or 350 miles north of Diamantina. Diamantina, I'm not sure. On the 20th of May, he gets repairs to the four-wheel drive at Winelli, Darwin. Now, that's about 1,600 kilometres or 1,000 miles northwest of Mount Isa. So he's on the move. On the 4th of June, Barbara Robinson sighted the Toyota 4Runner at Carmore Plains Point Stewart. Now that's about 160 kilometres or 100 miles east of Winelli. She took notice of the Queensland plated four-wheel drive as there'd been reports of a large number of buffalo shot in the area and their horns cut off. She wrote down the registration plate which was Queensland 338PNZ. So, that's where we'll leave Joseph Swab at this point of time. Now, on the road, having a family holiday, a Marcus Henry Bullen, 70, his wife, Winifred, son, Lance Robert Bullen, 40, and daughter-in-law, Joan. Marcus was retired and the former Deputy Mayor of Fremantle. They were on their way back to Fremantle, stopping along the way, setting up camp, fishing, and enjoying the outback. On the 8th of June, they decide to stop at the Wayside Inn and Caravan Park on the Victoria River near Fitzroy Station. It's about 520 kilometres or 320 miles southwest of Darwin. There's still 3,600 kilometres or 2,200 miles away from home. The next morning at around 9am, Marcus and his son Lance decide to go out and look for a good fishing spot and indicate they would be back in about an hour or so. Marcus and Lance drive about 9 kilometres or 6 miles west on the Victoria Highway and drive just off the road and find what they think might be a nice spot to fish. Now it's unclear exactly what happens here, but Swab is either already waiting there, but more likely he follows the Bullen's car into the fishing spot. As Marcus and Lance get out the car, 
they are almost instantly set upon by Schwab, who points the Ruger self-loading Mini-14 rifle at them and yells at them to get on their knees. From behind, he shoots Marcus and Lance in the back and they die almost immediately, with the bullets going through their bodies and into the ground. Swab collects the spent cartridges and puts them in his pocket. Swab then strips the bodies naked and drags them a short distance where he digs two shallow graves. He dumps the bodies in the graves and fills them in. While doing this, one of the spent cartridges falls out of his pocket. He then drives their car a short distance into scrub and after taking some of their possessions, he pours petrol over it and sets it alight. Now back at the Wayside Inn, it's nearing midday and with no sign of Marcus or Lance, Winifred and Joan start to worry, but they just reckon that the boys were fishing and will be back soon. As the afternoon rolled on, Marcus and Lance had still not returned to the campsite, so Winifred and Joan contacted Timber Creek Police in case they'd been in an accident or whatever. At 5pm, Helen Anderson, the owner of the Wayside Inn, sees Swab in his Toyota 4Runner at the park and takes note of the Queensland Rego plates as she's been asked to look out for a stolen Toyota 4Runner but with Northern Territory plates. She reported this to the Timber Creek Police even though, as I said, the plates were from a different state. Police searched all the fishing spots until it got dark with no sign of the two men. They called off the search until the next morning. The next morning, police located the burnt-out remains of the family car along the banks of the Victoria River, and that was about nine kilometres drive west of the Wayside Inn. Nearby, they found two shallow graves, which would later be confirmed as containing the bodies of the two missing men. As you can imagine, the wives Winifred and Joan were distraught and in shock once the police advised them of the find. Now, police secure the crime scene and their counterparts in Darwin are alerted. Roadblocks are also set up around the area. A major crime is declared by Assistant Commissioner Neil Plum and a major crime team is assembled to conduct a forensic examination of the crime scene. For the next two and a half days, evidence such as vehicle track, footwear impressions and drag marks were identified. Small areas of blood staining were found at the end and to the front of each side of Marcus's car tracks. These would later be found to be the blood of Marcus and Lance Bullen and confirmed the positions of where they were both executed. Using a metal detector, they find the spent cartridge that fell out of Swab's pocket and the two bullets that killed the Bullens. So it's now the night of Friday the 12th of June 1987 after the two and a half days gathering evidence from the crime scene. The next day, 
Saturday the 13th of June, Julie Ann Warren, her fiancé, Philip Charles Walkermeyer, and their friend Terry Kent Bolt, left Kununurra in northeast Western Australia, travelling in Walkermeyer's Toyota Troop Carrier. They stopped at the Pentecost River Crossing picnic area, about three kilometres or a couple of miles from the actual river crossing, some 110 kilometres or 70 miles southwest of Kununurra. They were joined by David McKenzie and Daniel Rowe. McKenzie worked with Walker Meyer and Bolt at the Department of Aviation at Kununurra. They were there fishing late into the night and at around midnight they all went to sleep. The next morning, the 14th, they woke, fished a bit more, had breakfast and started to pack up the camp. Mackenzie and Roe left to go back to Kununurra. Two other overnight campers, Desmond Murphy and Branko Miljevic, had spent the night about two kilometres from the Walkermeyer group and had now shifted to about 50 metres downstream and started fishing. They saw Mackenzie and Roe leave the group and saw Walkermeyer and Bolt sitting on deck chairs drinking beer while Julie Warren packed the camp gear into the car. They also saw that Walkermeyer's aluminium dinghy was still in the water. Just after 11am, Desmond and Branco leave the area and notice a white Toyota 4Runner with red stripes parked in a dry creek bed nearby. They noticed it had Queensland licence plates. So now at the campsite, there's Julie Warren, Philip Walkermeyer and Terry Bolt. Seeing they are alone now, Swab grabs the Ruger rifle and sneaks up on the unsuspecting campers. All of a sudden, out of the long grass and about 100 metres from the group, he opens fire, shooting and killing each of them as they tried to run away. Swab then strips each of the bodies and pulls them into the water in the hope that maybe Crocs would eat them. He then takes some of their personal effects and moves their car a short distance away and sets it on fire. As Schwab gets into his forerunner and drives back onto the main highway, a truckie notices the plume of smoke and sees Schwab driving from that area. He slows down a bit and lets Swab pass him. The truckie takes note of the driver, the car and the rego plates, thinking that this looks a bit suspicious. The next day, Monday the 15th of June, David McKenzie went to work and noticed that Philip Walkermeyer nor Terry Bolt were at work. He called Julie Warren's work but found she was not there. Calling around some more, he found that none of them were at home either. David then took a workmate, Kim Smith, with him back to the campground at the Pentecost River. It's here that they find Philip Walkermeyer's burnt-out car in a gully and the dinghy on the opposite side of the riverbank. Mackenzie then calls police. When police attend the site, 
They not only find the burnt out car, but they also find drops of blood near where the group had camped. At around 4pm, the naked body of Julie Warren was found floating in the river with a gunshot wound on the shoulder. The next morning, both Philip Walkermeyer and Terry Bolt were also found floating in the river and they also had gunshot wounds. Police sealed off the area and proceeded to do a forensic examination of the site. They were able to find spent cartridges from a .223 calibre rifle, several footprints and vehicle tracks. It wasn't long before police linked the Victoria River murders to the Pentecost River murders. At least on the face of it, they were extremely similar events. Police organised a seven-man tactical response group. They came out of Perth and they flew to the top end to track down and take on the gunman. As news got out, the public were terrified and police told people to only travel during the day and in a convoy if possible. Most people retreated to hotels and caravan parks as roadblocks were set up all over the Northern Territory and Western Australia and even some in South Australia. People were freaked out and so they should be. Police asked for any information regarding a white Toyota 4Runner that may be missing and if anyone had seen one in the Kimberley area with Queensland registration plates. One response was from Avis at Brisbane Airport, letting police know of a white Toyota 4Runner that had been hired by a German tourist and was long overdue. From this, they were able to get a Joseph Swab's name and they contacted the Department of Immigration to get further details of this Swab character. In the meantime, Peter Leutenegger, a helicopter pilot, was mustering horses in his helicopter when he came across what looked like a camouflage vehicle and that may well be the one police were looking for. So he flew his helicopter to Fitzroy Crossing Police Station where he landed and reported the sighting 15 kilometres or about 10 miles northwest of the town on Jubilee Down Station. The tactical response group arrived at Fitzroy Crossing Station at about 10.45am on June the 19th, 1987. Airspace was closed around Fitzroy Crossing Airport as the suspect vehicle was not that far away and police didn't want media helicopters getting in the way or alerting the suspect. At about midday, the tactical response group closed in on the suspect vehicle. They came in via the highway, well aware that it might just be an innocent tourist and not the murder suspect. As they got closer, they could see the vehicle but couldn't see anyone near it. The Western Australian Police aircraft was directed to make a low flyover the vehicle to try to flush out the occupant. The team on the ground were now within 50 metres of the vehicle. 
On the second approach of the police aircraft, Swab jumped out of the forerunner and with the 308 calibre bolt-action Seiko, he fired at the plane. Schwab was unaware of the tactical response group team creeping up on him. The pilots were able to take evasive action and were not hit by the gunfire. At this time, Sergeant Matson, the team leader of the tactical response group, yelled out to Schwab to stop shooting and he identified himself as a police officer. Swab immediately started firing in the direction of the tactical response group and Sergeant Matson called on his team to engage the offender. Within seconds of the shootout starting, the Seiko rifle was shot out of the hands of Swab, blowing off the end of his thumb. He retreated to the vehicle where he picked up the .223 Ruger, which was a self-loading rifle and better able to be used with one hand. He then moved off in a westerly direction. Police responded by firing tear gas rounds at and near the vehicle that started a fire. Now this burnt fiercely in the tall dry grass, but it endangered the vehicle and the campsite. Swab was retreating using a fire, then move, then fire and move tactic. Swab had placed ammo in strategic places around the vehicle in case he was found and there was a shootout. Now the fire was making his little ammo dumps explode, causing more confusion in the smoke and flames. Police knew they needed to get the car as it was going to go up in flames not only to preserve evidence, but in case Swab had hostages inside. Sergeant Matson advanced through cover fire and jumped in the car. He saw that no one was inside and was able to drive it out of the fire's range. Lucky, Swab had left the keys in it. Eventually, the police in the plane flying overhead relayed to the ground that they could see Swab lying face down on the ground. When police found him, he had a bullet wound to his back and that had exited out through his heart. At 3.40pm, June the 19th, 1987, Sergeant Matson reported to Detective Chief Inspector Bickford at Kununurra Police Station that he and his team had engaged Swab in a firefight resulting in Swab's death near the white Toyota 4Runner bearing Queensland number plate 338PNZ. The senior reporting officer, Detective Chief Inspector Bickford of the Western Australian Police, reported his conclusion as follows. Police action was taken lawfully and in compliance with the requirements of Section 233 of the Criminal Code. The deceased was a person reasonably suspected of having committed offences punishable with life imprisonment. He'd fired upon police and had taken flight in order to avoid arrest after police had identified themselves and had called upon him to stop. So pretty much police at this stage were sure that Swab was the offender in both the murders at Victoria River and the murders at Pentecost River. You can imagine the relief in the surrounding communities that the danger was all over. But police were now able to properly sort through the evidence, do the ballistics 
And this is what they came up with. Again, I want to credit John Horswell on his article. Now, the evidence linking Joseph Thomas Swab with the Victoria River's Northern Territory murders and the Pentecost River Western Australia murders is as follows. His M.O. A single .223 projectile was fired through each of the deceased Bullen's backs. A single .233 projectile was fired through the back of the deceased Warren. Multiple .223 projectiles were fired through the right side of the head, two through the back and one through the right shoulder of the deceased Bolt. Multiple .223 projectiles were fired through the right ear and chest areas of the deceased Walkermeyer. Each deceased was stripped. In the case of the Bullens, both deceased were buried in a shallow riverbed grave. In the case of Warren, Walkermeyer and Bolt, they were placed in a crocodile-infested river. The vehicle driven by the Bullens was stripped of its number plates and burnt. The vehicle driven by Warren, Walkermeyer and Bolt was also burnt. Now, property of the deceased. Property belonging to all three of the Pentecost River victims was later found in Swab's hire vehicle. They were driver's licences, firearms licences, credit cards, savings account books and checkbooks in all of the deceased names, as well as a toolbox and fishing tackle. With the forensic evidence, the same sole pattern impressions found at the Pentecost River and the Victoria River matched the soles of the Timberline boots located in the rear of the Toyota 4Runner at Fitzroy Crossing. Each deceased was killed by a .223 calibre projectile. The projectiles from the deceased Walkermeyer and Bolt matched identically with a test-fired projectile from the Ruger .223 Mini-14 self-loading rifle which was found in possession of Swab. The fired cartridge case located on the banks of the Victoria River in the Northern Territory matched identically with a test-fired cartridge from that .223 Mini-14 self-loading rifle. The five fired cartridge cases found at the Pentecost River in Western Australia, they also matched identically with the test-fired cartridge. The base of the fired cartridge cases located on the banks of the Victoria River at the Pentecost River and the ammo found in the back of the Toyota 4Runner, they all were marked WW Super FNM PS79. Tire impressions found at the Pentecost River, also at the Victoria River site, matched those with the Toyota 4Runner which was registered 338PNZ. So, as a perp is dead, it's pretty much a closed case. Now, why the fuck did he go and do what he did? I mean, he's in West Germany, he decides to fly to Australia, commits fraud pretty much straight away, buys a stack of guns, and then goes out to the middle of fuck fuck and starts shooting people. He's got no history of mental illness, so what's got into his fucking head to go and do this? Why come to Australia? Why not stay home and do it? Maybe from his first visit to Oz, he got some weird fantasy in his head 
And that's why he flew over and did what he did. It does look like it was pretty much planned out before he came over, but his family didn't notice anything wrong with him before he left the country. I don't know. I really don't know. Felon, they just, he just did a two-part series on Frank Vitkovich. Now, that he went on a shooting spree in Melbourne, killing eight people. He was only 22 years of age, and you wonder what set him off. But he left a diary, which pretty much spelled out why he did what he did. Schwab left no such clues. It also looks like he had no intention whatsoever of surrendering. He wanted to die in a shootout. Now, Schwab, he was only 25. Hardly old enough to become bitter and twisted. I mean, that's reserved for all of us over 40. Maybe it was just a dickhead. Well, at least he's not doing a 20-year sentence and out on parole. Boom, fuckalunga to you, Swabby. So that's about it for this week's story. Like I said, if the sharks, crocs, snakes, spiders or drop bears don't get you, there may be somewhere out the back of fuck fuck that will get you. I shouldn't put you off coming here. I mean, Jason Abercrombie drives all over the outback, outback, out the fuck of buck buck in his truck and I'm sure he would recommend the Northern Territory for a place to take a vacation. With their See You in the NT tourist promo, who wouldn't want to be there? So on to some shout-outs this week if I can if I can get a sentence right. First off, for Ivan, whose little brother Adam was getting his first tat. Boom vagalunga, Adam. Now, also to the Sydney Murderinos I had a few drinks with the other night. Hi to Nick, Karen, Natalie, Beck, Cassie and Lizzie. Boom vagalunga, guys. Now on to the new patrons of the island. Hi to Nadine Joy, Joanne Walmsley and Lizzie in the lab. Thank you so much for your support and thanks to all the existing and past patrons for your support. It's very much appreciated as this is a commercial free podcast that is totally listener supported. If you want to become a patron of the island, just go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island where for as little as a dollar you can become a patreon all funds go directly back to the island you can also do a one-off payment via paypal and you can do that by typing paypal.me forward slash true crime island buy me a beer if you want stickers, koozies, pins or key rings, you need to email me directly. My email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I can price it up for you according to postage. I have $20 and $25 loot packs available now. Keychains, lapel pins, koozie and stickers, that includes postage as well. You can buy the keychains, pins and koozies, of course, by themselves. Just email me for pricing. All other merch, such as t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage and the like, you can get them via the shop at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now, you don't have to remember all that because there's all these links at my website, truecrimeisland.com. Again, you don't have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review and share the love. The more people who know about the show, the better. 
If people don't know what a podcast is, please show them what one is. Join the Facebook group. Just search for True Crime Island and join in the chat. Remember, join the closed group. Don't forget to check out the Twitter and Instagram. The island handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat. There's so many other podcasts out there. And uh, hi to all the followers. I have two promos again for this week. First up is Pleasing Terrors. Join acclaimed ghost storyteller Mike Brown for a bi-weekly tour through the shadows of history. The Pleasing Terrors podcast features stories about haunted places, creepy history and forgotten folklore. For the past two decades, thousands of people have journeyed to Charleston, South Carolina to hear his stories. Now he's bringing them to you. Check it out, he's a great storyteller. The other one is Trace Evidence Podcast. Trace Evidence is a true crime podcast that focuses on unsolved cases from chilling murders to mysterious disappearances. Join host Stephen Pacero as he examines each case, diving deep into the evidence and exploring the theories which revolve around them. For each unsolved case, there are the victims and their families who want answers and the abductors and murderers who hide the truth. So get a load of that. Now, I just want to run another plug for the End the Backlog campaign. Now, Kate and Georgie from Nothing Rhymes with Murder podcast, they, like many of you, I'm sure, feel crazy emotional about all this stuff coming out about the arrest of the East Area Rapist. They felt the need to channel it into something positive, so we're organising a true crime community fundraiser in support of the End the Backlog campaign. Now, you can go to gofundme.com forward slash end the backlog. There's also endthebacklog.org, but they've got a little video which is www.bit.ly forward slash end the backlog prize draw. Now, please give generously as much as you can because every little bit helps. And they say, don't be the bastard that enters without donating. As of right now, we've got more than 30 true crime podcasts, and that includes Gen Y, That's Why We Drink, True Crime Garage, Case File, even True Crime Island. We've all donated something, and there's all these special gifts. Now, the details of this are going to be released as they receive them. The deadline for entry is 7 o'clock in the night, British Standard Time, on the 16th of June, 2018. Now, please go to their uh, websites so that you can get more information because they're going to draw the winner just after that. Now, their social media is at NRWM Podcast, facebook.com forward slash NRWM Podcast, instagram.com forward slash nothing rhymes with murder or just email them with any questions at nothing rhymes with murder at gmail.com well that's about it for tonight always lots of love to maggie james so this has been cambo and you've been listening to true crime island and as i always say don't forget to delete your browser history good night
Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown. Join me on a journey through the shadows of history. The Pleasing Terrors podcast weaves true stories of history and true crime with folklore and the paranormal. But be warned, there are no sweet dreams here. Only nightmares. Hey podcast listener, this is Steven, the host of Trace Evidence, a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders and missing persons. Each week, I dig deep into the evidence, suspects, and theories revolving around the unsolved cases you think you know, Elisa Lamb, Aisha Degree, Brandon Lawson, and the ones you've never heard, Lily Aramburo, Candace Hilt, Kanika Powell, If you're a true crime fan, haunted by unanswered questions, join me each Monday for a thorough examination of the victims, their stories, and the unknown perpetrators behind them. Trace Evidence is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and all your favorite podcatchers. Visit trace-evidence.com for a full list of episodes, transcripts, and to subscribe today.